Would you turn with me, please, in your Bibles? And would you turn with me, please, to the book of Revelation? We're going to take a look at the second chapter. Um, But just before we get into that, uh, Jesus Christ commanded John to write in verse 19 of chapter 1. He says to him in verse 19, Write, therefore, the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. And with this one verse, in in verse uh, 19 of chapter 1, the Lord uh, gave John an outline for this great book. The outline is that what we have seen, the the things which we have seen are are chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. That's the, uh, the things that we saw of Jesus Christ. I mean, you really cannot do a, a decent study of this great book without understanding and knowing who Jesus Christ is first. You must really understand that this one in whom we worship is none other than on Christ the solid rock that we stand. Everything else is just sinking sand. And so what we proposed to you in the weeks that we've we're past, we, we propose to you that you really not think of Jesus Christ as the baby born in the manger, as wonderful as that is. And that you really not think of him as the one who walked the streets of Galilee, as wonderful as that was, because it was Jesus in his humanness that, that allowed him to go to the cross, that allowed him to die upon the cross and shed his blood for our sin. We're going to celebrate that in a few weeks when we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday which is the, well, it is really the week of weeks for those of us who have trusted in Christ as our Lord and Savior. It's everything to us to to see the risen Savior in all of His glory. Well, it is here in this, the book of Revelation, that we really get to concentrate on who Jesus Christ is in His glorified state, the one who sits at the throne of God Almighty. And so now we are going to move from that phase, from the things that we have seen in chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. We are now going to see the things which are, and those, those things that are are the churches that we will see in chapters 2 and 3. There are seven churches that are mentioned, and they are essential for you and me to understand these churches. These churches speak not only to the seven churches which are in Asia, as we saw in chapter 1 and verse 4, but they speak to all the churches throughout history, past, present, and future. And make no mistake about it, Jesus Christ is saying to these churches what he would say to any church today. Let's let's be selfish for a moment. Let's narrow it down from all the churches And let's concentrate on what he might be saying to you and me, this church, this day. He is going to say these things to any church that gathers together in his name, and we do that for certain. We worship him in that phrase, in that way. By the way, how do you worship him? How how are you doing in that aspect of your life? You know he's here. You know He sees us, do you not? It's reason enough to worship Him and to listen to Him, what He has to say to us very closely. Remember last week when we took a look and John turned around and he saw this one who was speaking to him and he fell at his feet, the Bible says, as a dead man, John did. Jesus Christ laid His hand on John. He said, don't be afraid. Asked him to get up. And John, and how he explained him from his head to his eyes to his feet to his voice his hair his right hand his mouth his face when he mentioned his eyes he said his eyes were like a flaming fire and we we noted last week in hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13 that that it says about jesus christ that no creature is hidden from his sight not a one of us but all things it says are are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom you and I have to do. He sees everything we do. He notices how we worship Him today, and He notices how preoccupied we are, or, we, or how, how serious we are we come to church to worship Him this morning. 
And so as we're going to see here, he's going to mention to the churches, all seven of them, if you have an ear, hear what the Spirit of God is saying to your church. Listening is an ongoing theme out of chapters 2 and 3. I want to show it to you. It's, it's, it's quite remarkable. It behooves us to listen very closely to what he is trying to teach us out of these seven churches so that we can take those things that we are doing correctly and, and continue in that fashion and build upon that and take a look at the things that we're not doing so well and move it aside, repent from it. Look at chapter 2 with me for a moment. Verse 7. It says in verse 7, He, to the church at Ephesus, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, look at verse 11, to the church at Smyrna. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Look at verse 17, to the church at Pergamum. He who has an ear, again, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 29, to the church at Thyatira, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jump to chapter 3 and verse 6, to the church at Sardis, he who has an ear, again he says, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Verse 13, the church of Philadelphia, again, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And then finally in verse 22, the message to Laodicea, he says in verse 22 again, over and over and over, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so we ought to listen very closely to these two chapters, chapters 2 and 3, because it will help us grow as we mature as a, a group of believers, but it will help us as we formulate this church and make it all that God wants it to be. But there's also an even more important theme that runs through these seven churches, if that's possible. And that theme is the word overcomes. As we just did this exercise in chapters 2 and 3 for hearing, I want you to look with me at what it says to those who overcome, because with an overcomer, Jesus Christ gives a reward, a very great reward, I might add, Look at chapter 2 and verse 7 to the church at Ephesus. After he says, who has an ear to ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. He says, to him who overcomes, here it comes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I want that so bad for you and for me that I can taste it. Look at verse 11. After he says, to who, he who has an ear, he says, to those who overcome, they shall not be hurt by the second death. I want that badly. Look at verse 17 to the church at Pergamum. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. I'll have to study that part hard because I can be honest with you right now. I'm not sure what that means. But I want it. I want that hidden manna. I want that stone with, with a name written on it that no one knows but myself. I want it because he's going to give it to me. Look at verse 26 in the church of Thyatira. He says to the church of Thyatira, the person who overcomes, he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. I'll be candid with you. I don't want any authority. I've had a lifetime of it right now. Being in a church for all these years, since 86, and being in ministry for so much time, I, I'll tell you what I want when I get to heaven. If it's possible to the Lord, I'll take anything He gives me. If He wants to give me the authority, so be it. But I'd, I'd just as soon get a pair of, of gloves and wash the latrines. That's, I'd like that little job right there with no authority. I'll follow you, and I guarantee you one thing. I won't murmur, but I don't want authority up there. But if that's what the Lord wants to give me, so be it. Then look at chapter 3 and verse 6. To the church of Sardis, he says to... Oh, excuse me. I jumped to... I, I meant to verse uh, 5. It says, um, To him he overcomes, 
He shall be clothed in white garments. I want that. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. I want that. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Oh, do I want that for you and for me. Look at verse 12, Church of Philadelphia. To the one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore. I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. I want all of that. And then verse 21 to the church of Laodicea, he says again to the one who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne and I also, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And so as we read through these, these events of those who hear, let them hear what the Spirit says. And then it says, to those who overcome, I will grant a reward. I say to you, as you probably are thinking right now, it behooves us all to find out, okay, what does it mean to be an overcomer? It's important. Would you not agree? So today, let's read out of the book of, of, of Ephesus, chapters 2, verses 1 through 7. And let's see what the Lord says to this church. And let's see how we're doing well and how we, can we continue to do so. And let's see one of some of the areas where we may have to improve. Verse 1, to the angel of the church at Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. You cannot endure evil men. You put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. You found them to be false. And you have perseverance and, and have endured for my name's sake. You have not grown weary. Verse 4. But this, but this I have against you. You have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent, and, and do the deeds that you did at first, or else I'm coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Again, he says, as we read a while ago, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, with all of my heart, with every core of my being, I pray for this church. I pray for the people of this church, their families, their loved ones, I pray, Father, that we would grasp, that we would hear what the Spirit has to say to us as a church and that we would become those who overcome so that we might, Father, as it says here in this verse, grant, be granted to eat from the tree of life which is in your paradise, Father. We long for that. I long for that for every soul that's here and everyone that comes to this church. But Father, I pray that you would move me aside. This is too critical, a place of Scripture, to um, leave in the hands of a mere human being. So Father, I ask that you would move me aside and that you would speak to us, that, that we would see and sense your voice coming from these verses that we have just read that we will study now. We thank you for the music and the songs that we sang, Father, as we worshiped your holy and righteous name. And now, Father, we want to worship you through the reading and the understanding of your word. So you guide us and teach us. I pray this in the most precious name that I know of, Father, on the face of this earth and in heaven itself. I pray this in the name of your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Thank you for him, Father. In Jesus' precious name, we say thank you. Amen. Okay, let's jump ahead to verse 7. Don't normally do this, but we will. We want to see, first and foremost, who is the one who overcomes. 
Jesus says, I'm going to grant to that person who overcomes to eat out of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, the tree of life was originally found in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9. It was planted in the garden. And God told Adam, I don't want you to eat from that tree. Adam obviously told Eve, I don't want you to eat from this tree. Well, when the serpent came and and tempted Eve, he said, well, can you eat from any of the trees in the garden? She said, "You, you bet we can, except for that one in the middle. We're not to eat it nor touch it. And he said, you surely will not die if you eat from that tree. God knows in the day that you eat from it, you're going to become like him and you're going to know the difference between good and evil. He's trying to keep something from you. And so as we already know, she ate. Gave it to her husband, Adam, and he ate. And so their sin began and And then God placed a curse upon them. And then we see this tree mentioned again in chapter 3 of Genesis, in verse 22. It's the Lord speaking, and He's speaking, obviously, to Himself. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are having a conversation. And so it says in verse 22 of Genesis chapter 3, the Lord says, "Man, Man has become like one of us, us being capitalized. He knows the difference between good and evil. Unless he stretch out his hand now and take from the tree of life and eat. And then he says he will then live forever. So God removed Adam and Eve from the garden. And obviously, as you look ahead in the book of Revelation, the 22nd chapter, we see that the tree of life is now planted in heaven itself. Read with me, please. In chapter 22, it's the last chapter of this great, wonderful book. Verse 5, it says, He showed me a river of the water of life that was clear as crystal. It came from the throne of God and of the Lamb of God. I'm in the 22nd chapter, the first verse. Now I'm in the second verse. He says, And in the middle of its street... On either side of the river was the tree of life. There it is again. It's bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb of God shall be in it. And His bondservants shall serve Him. And they will see His face and His name shall be on their foreheads. It says in verse 5 that there shall no longer be any night. They'll have no need of light of the lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God Himself will illumine us. And they shall reign with Him forever and ever. And so we see that now God gives to all who love and believe and trust in Him this tree of life and we will reign with Him forever and ever. So before we go any further in this study of churches, because it mentions overcomer in every church, we better understand what that means. It's critical to your life and my life, I would say. We're in the Revelation, the book of Revelation. Would you turn to the left to the book of 1 John? You'll go past Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and then 1 John, chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5 happens to be a, one of my favorite places in all of Scripture because it was in this place in some, I don't know, now 80, 1983, uh, I don't know how many years ago that is, 38 years ago, let's say, approximately, that I came to believe and trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And it was out of this place that just sealed the deal in my heart that I needed Jesus Christ. It says the, in, in, in 11, verses 11, 12, and 13 of 1 John chapter 5, 1 John 5. And by the way, it has nothing to do with overcomers. But it says the witness is this, that God has given us everlasting life, and this life is in His Son, Jesus Christ. And he or she who has the Son of God has life, and he or she who has not the Son of God has not life. And then he says, I have written these things, 
He says, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you might know that you have everlasting life. Well, in 1 John chapter 5, beginning with verses 1 through verse 5, we understand and find out who is an overcomer. Who is the one who receives everlasting life through faith in Jesus Christ and He alone? It says, whoever believes, verse 1 of chapter 5, and this is now critical for us understanding who is an overcomer. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. That means Jesus, of course. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and we observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and He makes His promise to us. It's wonderful out of verse 3. His commandments, He says, are not burdensome. And here's what I want you to read with me, verses 4 and 5. It says, For whatever is born of God, note, overcomes the world. That's that word, overcomes. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? Please, out loud, would you tell me, what is the victory that overcomes the world? Our faith. 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 It's everything to you and me. It's that thing that you can't put your hands around. It's that, it's that trust or, or belief or pure faith that you believe in something that perhaps you have not seen. Perhaps you've not touched. It says to verse 5, to the one, who is the one who overcomes, there's that word again, the world, but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Instantly, we observe that the victory that overcomes the world is our faith, our belief, our trust, our love in Jesus Christ. You see, your faith, our faith, my faith in Jesus Christ is the only thing needed to become an overcomer. Faith is that scarlet thread that weaves its way throughout Scripture that each of us must trust and believe. It comes from Adam to Eve, to you and to me and to everyone in between. Old Testament as well as new. In the Old Testament, by faith, they believed that the Messiah was going to come. And that faith was reckoned to them as righteousness. They trusted that one day the Messiah would come. I don't believe they had an, a clue that he would come and, and be nailed to and die upon a cross. But they looked forward to the coming Messiah. You and me in the New Testament, we don't look forward. We look backward. We look backward at the cross and there we see the Messiah. We see the one who was nailed to the cross. The one who shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sin. And then three days later we see him raise himself from the dead never to die again. And so in seeing that we have, we have come to believe in him. Old Testament and New. We all come through the same key that opens the door, and that is faith. It's faith. It's always been faith. It always will be faith. Faith is the only thing that will make you right with God. Faith is the only thing that will make you an overcomer. And faith is what God asks of all of us equally, regardless of your religion, regardless of your denomination. Whether you be rich, poor, Whatever race you happen to be or nationality, none of this is important to God. Just faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, period. It is faith in Christ alone. On that rock, solid rock we stand. All others are sinking sand. It is faith in Christ alone that will save a person and make him or her an overcomer critical for you to know that. Invariably, this question is asked, what about my Aunt Flo? Now, I don't have an Aunt Flo. I just made up that name. What about Aunt Flo or, or Uncle Joe? They have never, to my knowledge, done a thing wrong in their lives. Aunt Flo wouldn't hurt a fly. And yet she doesn't believe. She's never trusted in Christ. Do you mean to say to me, to my Aunt Flo... It's going to go to hell? 
Have you ever been asked that question, by the way? That's really, about a year ago, I went back with some of my friends, and I think I was ambushed by a person that asked me about my faith, and I said that I trusted in Jesus Christ, and she said, does that mean you have, you'll go to heaven? I said, yes. And she said, well, what about someone who's not a, a Christian? Will they, will they not go to heaven? And I said, well, and she says, my, what about my brother? He's Jewish. Is he going to hell? Here I stood with three of my best friends and, and this dear old lady. And she asked me about her son. Was he going to go to hell? I felt ambushed. So I figured if we're going to have a Texas standoff, let's go. <laughs> I said to her, I don't make the rules. I don't tell anybody whether they can or cannot go to heaven. That's not my rule to make. That's just what the Bible teaches. The Bible says clearly that you come to Christ through faith in Him and Him alone. And that gives you everlasting life and everyone else. Everyone else, just like the song that we sang, I don't think I said these words, but everyone else is on sinking sand. And so Paul must have been bombarded by that question because he wrote in Romans chapter 3, verses 10, 11, and 12, he says that none, absolutely no one, he says, is righteous. He says none of us, absolutely no one, he says, understands. He says none, absolutely nobody seeks after God, he wrote. And there is none, nobody who does good. No, not one of us. So that includes every aunt, Flo, and Uncle Joe there is on the face of this earth. That each of us have a desperate need for a Savior. And Jesus Christ is that one. So your being right before God doesn't come through this church or any church. It doesn't come through your being good enough. It doesn't come through your denomination. It doesn't come through your zeal for God nor all that you might be doing for Him. No, as it's crystal clear from Scripture, your faith only comes through and in Jesus Christ and He alone. And that is what will turn you into what is critical for us to understand in the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. That will turn you into an overcomer and will save your soul. Now, I hope you grasp that. Because that is critical for us understanding chapters 2 and 3. Actually, all of this scripture. But especially where we are, because each church mentions, if you have an ear, hear what the Spirit is saying to you, and you become an overcomer, and you receive a reward because of what you listened to. So let's get back to this wonderful study of chapter 2, and let's jump into, well... Let's look what Jesus says to verse 5 because it is critical for us, the Rock Community Church, as a body of believers. Jesus says in verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen and repent. Now he's speaking to the book of Ephesus, but let's, let's incorporate this into our life if needed. Remember where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now, remember in verse 20 of chapter 1, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, the Lord said, the seven gold uh, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels, and the seven churches of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the churches. So he says, I will remove your church, in essence. The clearest place that I can see to try to explain what, what I would love to explain to you out of this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Would you turn with me to the left and find 1 Corinthians? Um, 1 Corinthians is kind of right after, uh, you know, uh, Acts and then Romans, and then comes 1 Corinthians. Look at chapter 9 with me. And we see Paul making a wonderful explanation of of, of what he wants to become as a believer in Jesus Christ, what, what all of us should incorporate into our lives. 
He says in verse 22, after talking about this freedom that he has in Christ, he says, to the weak I become weak, so that I might win the weak. He says, I become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some of them. I, I want to save people, says Paul says. So whether it's weak or strong, whatever it is, I have to become, I become, so as by some means I might save them. Then he says in verse 23, And I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. A fellow partaker of the gospel. That is what we are supposed to be doing at this church. We are supposed to to share the gospel. We are to, to speak the gospel and we are to take the gospel out of these four walls into the world in which we live. And so, and so doing the things for the sake of the gospel is doing things for the sake of the church, so to speak. And Paul says, I want to become a fellow partaker in that. And so we can say, all right, Paul wants to be a fellow partaker in the whole scheme of the church, of taking the gospel. And so what does he say? He says in verses 25, 26, and 7, Therefore, and now he gives us an example how he wants to discipline his life, so he becomes that kind of a man who is a, a, a partaker of the gospel, a fellow partaker with Christ. He says everyone, in verse 25, who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They, they do it to receive a perishable wreath. But you and me, we do it to receive something imperishable. He's saying, look, first and foremost, he says, if you've ever watched anyone train, they, they, they exercise self-control, so they, they buffet their bodies, so to speak. So they, they, they take away all the, the, the I was going to say the fat, and that really strikes home. I want to self-control and take away the fat, uh, very good. But So he exercises self-control so as to cut away the things that are not needed and do the things that are necessary. Therefore, he says in verse 26, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box, he says, in such a way, uh, not just beating the air. In other words, I have a purpose in all of this. I have an aim in what I'm trying to do. He says, I buffet my body. I, 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 I discipline my body. I make it my slave, he says. Basic to your faith and my faith, basic to what we do in this church is that we should have a purpose and a name. In other words, there is no reason for you and me to come to church in a hit and miss fashion every week. People who come to church and simply fill the pews, they're a dime a dozen. I don't want you and me to become like that. We ought to come to church, you and me, with a purpose in mind, an aim. We ought to live our lives, our homes, our families, our workplace, with a purpose for God to win the race, whatever race it has, He has before you. Buffet your body. Make it your slave. Discipline yourself. Exercise self-control so that for the sake of the gospel, you and I might become fellow partakers with Jesus Christ in and through, hopefully, this church. Lest we too, if you turn back, please, to Revelation chapter 2, and in this case, look at verse 5. We have our lampstand removed out of its place. That's about as sad a, a statement as you can find within Scripture, but there's something much sadder we'll see in a moment. But it is extremely sad to think that God would remove His blessings from a church. But learn from verse 5. If we do not stay the course, if we do not repent from our sins, God shall remove our blessing. And he will accomplish his goal. He'll just do it elsewhere. He'll do it through another person or he'll do it through another church. But he will remove the lampstand, the church, and do his blessings elsewhere. That warning moves me beyond your wildest dreams. It, it, it wearies me. Not wearies me tired. It wearies me saddened to think that you and I might 
be living a lifestyle that, 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 that would cause God to remove our place, remove us from the blessings that he wants to pour out within our lives. And so Paul says, run to win. Exercise self-control. Run your faith with an aim, with a purpose. Don't just beat the air. Lest you run for naught. Listen, anyone can come to Christ. Anyone can, really. But it takes courage. Really courage to be a believer who wants to live their life with Him through thick and through thin. In Revelation chapter 2, we see in verses 2, 3, and 6 that this church was once extremely powerful. They worked, it says in verse 2, read with me, I know your deeds, Jesus says, I know your toil, I know your perseverance. You cannot endure evil men. You put to test those who call themselves apostles and who are not. You found them to be false. Verse 3, you've, pers- you've preserved or persevered. You've in- endured for my name's sake and you've not grown weary. And then he says in verse 6, you also hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Nicolaitans supposedly were those who walked their religion real close to the world. They, they compromised their faith for worldly desires. Basically, they were hypocrites. Come to church all washed up, clean and better. And when they left, didn't give a second thought about God. Went their way, lived a hypocritical life. Others say they were a cult that were led by a Nicholas of Antioch. And Nicholas of Antioch, before I became a believer, I would have followed this dude because he said you needed to experience sin to understand it. I'm all in. Let's go, Nick. Where are we going? No matter which way it was, whether they were hypocritical or those that just believed they needed to experience sin to know it, Jesus said he hated, in verse 6, their deeds. He compliments the church at Ephesus, but then he warns them. And he warns them with a warning that, of why I want to take the rest of our time to try to get through. He warns them in verse 4. Verse 4 is perhaps the most critical warning you and I will ever receive out of the Word of God. He says, but this, but this I have against you. You have what? You've left... Your first love. You want to note something immediately. He did not say you lost your first love. You left your first love because John chapter 10 verses 27, 28, and 29 tells us clearly that a true believer in Jesus Christ cannot lose their salvation. But you can leave it. Jesus said when the, talking to the religious leaders of his day in John chapter 10, verse 27, he says, my, my followers hear my voice and they, they know me. He says, I, I have them in my hands and, and nobody, he says, nobody will be able to take them out of my hands. And then he says, beyond that, my father, in verse 29, my father has them in his hand who is greater than all and no one will be able to take them out of my father's hand. And then he finished that by saying, I and my father are one. So you cannot lose, but you can leave your first love. I want to tell you something about Ephesus. And I want to compare it to us somewhat. Ephesus was the capital of Asia. It was the second largest seaport town in that area. It had a trade center and business that was second to none. It was full, though, of false gods, full of idolatry, full of immorality. But it also was rich. It was rich in its Christian blessings. God supplied Ephesus with some of the greatest teachers on the face of this earth. They had Apollos, it says in Acts chapter 18, verse 24, who was mighty in the Scriptures. Wouldn't you want to hear him preach? 
They also had a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. But to me, most important, they had Paul. Paul, who taught there for three years. Ephesus had an abundance of great teachers of the Word of God. And so we best not be complacent. Because Jesus says this in verse 4, This though I have against you, you've left your first love. Listen, if your first love is not Jesus Christ in His Word, then you are missing everything about your faith. Everything, everything about your faith. If a church becomes or you become self-centered, if a church or you become program-centered or money-centered or business-centered instead of Christ-centered and His Word-centered, then there's a good chance that not only yourself but your church will leave your first love of Jesus Christ. Think with me, please. Why? Why do we open our doors every week, every day? Why do we have studies here going on? Why are you here? Do you know why we're here this morning? It's not haphazardly that we open our doors. It's not haphazardly that we, that we have the music that we have or, or, the, or the preaching that we have. We come together for one purpose in mind, and that is to worship Jesus Christ with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, with everything within us, so that hopefully you will catch with us this love of Jesus Christ, and you will not leave your first love. We come to worship Jesus Christ We come to stay close to our first love through the Word of God. Watch this now. If you've come here first to ask God for something, anything to help you out or to fulfill your wishes or your desires, then you are going to church incorrectly. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be asking God for things, but not here. Here you come to worship Him. Here we come to praise His holy and righteous name and to stay close to our first love that is none other than Jesus Christ. If we gather together to focus our thoughts and our needs, watch, off of ourselves and on to the praises of God Almighty, then we're doing it correctly. And we're trying. But today, Christianity, for the most part, churches have taken their eyes off of Jesus Christ and His Word. And they've placed their thoughts and their minds on themselves. And they're losing their first love. Churches today, sadly, say they've been taught, gather together and and, and let's get from God. You you need money? Who doesn't? With enough faith... Get your money. Pray for your money. Pray for a new car. Pray for work that you don't have. Peace, health, whatever it is, pray for it. Rather than we come together to do one thing, and that is to worship the holy name of our God from these pews in which we sit. Jesus warned the church at Ephesus, who was abundantly great teachers, this I have against you. You're losing your first love. What does our Lord have to say about this? You really don't have to hold on to to Revelation right now. You can put your marker in there, but turn, please, to the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest message ever preached. Jesus Christ was preaching in Matthew chapter 6. Please turn with me there. Important, critical, turn to me there. I want you to to see that what I'm saying is not just something, just trying to, to... to motivate you to, to not lose your first love. It's not just my thoughts what I'm giving you right now. Here's how you and I ought to come to church. Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6 and verse 20, 25, For this reason, Jesus is preaching, I say to you, don't be anxious for your life. Don't be anxious for what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink, nor your body is what you're going to put on. And then he asks a rhetorical question. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? The answer is yes. Then he gives you an example. Look, he says, look at the birds of the air. 
They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't gather into barns. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Another rhetorical question. Are you not worth much more than them? Yeah, you are. And which of you, he says in verse 27, by being anxious can add a single cubit to your lifespan? Why are you anxious? Why are you anxious about your clothes? Look, he says, here's another example. Look at the lilies of the field. They don't toil. They don't spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory didn't clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, another rhetorical question, will he not much more do so for you, O people of little faith? Therefore, he says in verse 31, don't be anxious. Don't ask, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to clothe ourselves with? All of these things, he says in verse 32, the Gentiles, that's the non-believers, eagerly seek. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Can you not underline that? There's no need for you to come to church this morning and to ask Him. He already knows. You can ask Him during the week. But when you come here, gather here for a purpose, an aim. And that is to glorify and magnify and worship His holy and righteous name. He says in the next verse, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first my righteousness. And then these things, food, clothing, um, 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 whatever else, they'll be added to you. It is my deepest fear that God might say to us as a church, you've done good, but this I have against you. You've left your first love. I don't want that to happen. Forgive me if I say this. I've never been late to church. Now, when we had kids, I shouldn't have said never. I get it. Kay and I get it. We know what it's like to have to get the kids all ready. But we used to start a half an hour early so we wouldn't be late to church. Why? Because church was where we would go to worship our God collectively with a group of people whom we fell in love with. I'm going to say this. Please, please don't think badly of me. There's no reason to come to church late, but if you do, don't apologize. We will always come late. Once in a while, you might have a flat tire. You might, there's no telling what might happen. But as a general rule, we should come here and be on time to sing and to worship our Lord and to honor Him through the preaching of His Word. And we shouldn't be coming here to seek from Him what we can get. That's not the way to come to church. I know churches teach that all over the place. Those churches are a dime a dozen. They're a dime a dozen. But churches that want to teach the Word of God and want to honor and praise and worship our God. And so I ask, where is our faith? Where is our first love? We're to come to church not seeking from Him. We're to seek after Him with all of our hearts because He is our first love. Listen to what Paul penned. First service, I cried like a baby over this. I mean cried. I mean, you know, snot running down my nose crying. So I'm hoping I make it through this. But listen, this hits too close to home. Paul penned these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. He says, I am jealous for you. I don't like comparing myself to Paul, but I want to say to you, I love you more than life itself. I love this church more than life itself. I am jealous for you to love the Lord. 
Paul writes, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Amen, Paul. He says, I betrothed you to one husband, so have I. We've not taught you, taught you anything here apart from Jesus Christ and he alone. I get it. He says, I, I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ he might, I might present you as a pure virgin. That means faithful to Christ and he alone. No other lovers. A pure virgin. I betrothed you to that one. But he says in verse 3, I'm afraid. I'm fearful that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be led astray. Led astray from the simple and pure devotion of Christ. Folks, if you and I come to church seeking after what He can give us rather than how we can praise His name, we're doing church incorrectly, and you're on the process of losing, leaving, leaving, your first love. And I don't want that to happen to you. I love you way too much. And I love our Lord way too much. The priority of this church shall be and always will be our sincere and intense love of Jesus Christ and He alone. I want you to hear what the Spirit is saying to you. I want you to become an overcomer if you're not, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, listen, you don't have to jump through a lot of hoops to become a believer. You just ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sin, and you by faith trust in Him as your Savior, and then you repent from the things that you've done wrong. And He'll, he'll straighten your life up. That's a guarantee from Him, not from us. And so we want you to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We want you to become an overcomer. And by the grace of God, we want all of us never, ever, ever to lose our first. Leave our first love. Hold it close to Jesus Christ. Worship Him. Make this church a priority. No, make Him a priority through this church. That's better. Father in heaven, bless us, please. May we worship you as, as no other church. No, Father, forgive me. No need for us to compare to others. Let us just worship you the best we know how. Let us not ever, ever leave our first and most precious love of life, and that's you. May we center all that we do from the music to the announcements, to the preaching of the Word, be a time that we might worship You with all that we are. We give You thanks for that, Father. In Jesus' most precious name, Amen. Have a great day. I love you with all my heart. Thank you for that. Thank you.